The Days of Awe. Last week we talked, for many people there, the days of blah. What am I supposed to do with this? For others, for others, there's the days of, oh man, we're back to this again, but even worse, the days of, oh man, I can't believe that this time this year, I'm still struggling with the same issues that I struggled with last year at this time. The days of, oh man, why am I not getting any better? Why am I struggling with this issue or that issue? For what I'm doing, I don't understand. I'm not practicing what I'd like to do, but I'm, I'm doing the very thing I hate. You're in good company. Who said that? Paul said that. We say as we struggle through our sins, and we'll talk about that word, but man, last year I said... I'm going to really, I'm going to master this thing. I'm going to get better. I'm going to, next year is going to be good. This is my, quote, year of deliverance. But I find the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God and the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin, which is in my members. If that has ever been you, you're in good company. Who said that? Paul said that. Facing this bottom line, even after salvation, even after becoming a disciple of Messiah Yeshua and seeing all the great and amazing things that he's done for you, we still sin. We still sin. I am a sinner. Why? Well, first of all, sinner. Sinner, that sounds and feels so Jonathan Edwards-ish, doesn't it? Sinners in the hands of an angry God, you foul, despicable. Like, how about, how about this rephrasing? And not to be politically correct, but rather than fundamentalist fire and brimstone, how about this? Why do I struggle to follow all of God's perfect and beautiful instruction for my life? Why? Why do I continue to miss the mark? Why do I not look like the perfect disciple of Yeshua? Do we ever ask ourselves that question? I do, but not enough. As a matter of fact, rarely. And I cycle back here, you know, having trucked through another year and it's the high holidays, let's do it, right? Well, why do we sin? There's a traditional understanding, it's called, in Christian thought, original sin. We familiar with it? One time I spent about, I had a grand idea to do a huge series on original sin and what Judaism thinks about it. And I spent about six hours preparing the first message. And I looked at it and I said, eh, eh, throw it in the trash. Everybody already knows this. Whether it's Calvinism or, or Arminianism or whatever ism it is, 
We're horrible, despicable creatures, trash on the garbage heap before Yeshua, in need of salvation. Born a sinner, you have no choice. A favorite Lancasterism of mine is damned by default. There are some challenges with that, though. And I want to talk to you for a little bit today. I may go over my prescribed amount of time where I try to keep all my messages within this time frame to keep you awake. There are some challenges with this concept of original sin. Ultimately, who's responsible for the sin? God is responsible for the sin. Why? Because he allowed it to happen. And he let you be born with this curse of original sin within you. If I'm born with a sinful nature, who's to blame? I didn't have any control over that. And as an extension of that point, it makes God's nature seem to me a little bit cruel and unjust. I mean, how about a stacked deck? Remember last week being acted upon by an unbalanced force. Talk about it. It's our nature. Listen, I'm a sinner. I can't help it. But for me, most troubling is the detachment that that puts into the equation. Equation, detachment from my actions because, well, Adam did it. Adam's the reason I'm like this. Detachment from my father because, well, he made me this way. And most of all, a detachment from your responsibility as a disciple of Yeshua, which is to walk above sin regardless of how you came into this world. And, and, and of his work, of his atoning work. I, I had this thing that needed fixing. He fixed it. I was that. Now I'm this. On with life. If it's fixed, why are we here? If it's fixed, why do we still struggle? Why do we come to the high holidays and ask the same questions? Why do we come into this space if it is fixed? Am I suggesting that Yeshua's work is incomplete? That we need to do something on our own to really like get in. You know, Yeshua took us almost there, but we got to take it a little bit further to get into heaven. No, that's not at all what I'm saying. Because Yeshua's work is completed for what? The final chapter, entrance into the world to come. He did what you could never, ever, 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 ever do. He provided atonement. What I am suggesting is that there are still chapters of your life that are being written day by day, minute by minute, decision by decision. And that sin still lives. And that's pretty much what Paul was saying. I mean, Paul, right? He's the go-to guy for Christian thought. Regardless of what Yeshua said, Paul is the guy who's going to define it. But that's what he said. He said, man, I'm still struggling he had a pretty good understanding of Yeshua's work in this world and the next and what Yeshua did. Pretty good, really good. But he also had something that everyone needs. And this is for my Christian brothers and sisters and everyone else, spirit and flesh, right? This is the dichotomy of the world. I'm either in the spirit or I'm in the flesh. Spirit, good, flesh, really not good, 
like really bad. That's the dichotomy. However, there's a different way that, that, that Judaism seems to look upon this. There's these terms, nefesh habahamit. It's a word from the, you know the word behemoth? Do you know that's a Hebrew word? That means like animal. So nefesh habahamit is an animal spirit, an animal soul. Not like the First Nations Native Americans where I have the spirit of an eagle that's going to let me rise and fly through the clouds. It's a, it's a natural inclination. And then you have the nefesh ha-elohim, the spirit of God that dwells within you. <clears throat> a higher self and a lower self. Now, lest you fear that we're going to delve into Buddhism before your eyes... Namaste. I don't even know what that means. I hope it doesn't mean anything bad. But here's the thing. There's an interesting, um, there's an interesting insight that helps Jewish tradition, sages, rabbis, apply this dual nature of man. It is found in Genesis 2-7, which we find here in this text. Then Adonai God formed a man from the dust. He formed a man from the dust, a person from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now, there's a very uncommon spelling that's going on right here in these words. The word formed, yetzer, yetzer, uh, yotzer. Oh, I forgot. I can't leave this microphone. Sorry. There's a word. You can go to the next one. Okay, so we have, whoa, cool, what was that? Oh, formed, I get it, nice. So we have in Hebrew the letter Yod, right? Which is a Y sound, correct? So you can imagine that the word Yotzer would start with Y, Yod, right? You can go to the next one. Now, what we find here is the word that's used in Genesis 2-7 which says, Vayitzer. What do you notice about the middle of that word? There are two whys. Remember our question, why do we sin? You get it? Two whys in the middle. Why? That's a lot of whys. Here's the interpretation. While that would normally have one yud, nope, not in this case, because as God was forming us, what did he do? He blew into us, right? But he gave us two natures represented by the yud. Now, we have a choice. You can go to the next one. We have a choice. We can serve one or the other. Yotzer, our creation, or our yetzer, our creator, I'm sorry, or our Yetzer, our inclination. Now, we're going to get into some familiar words here in Judaism if you've been around Messianic traditional Jewish thought at all. Next slide. Yetzer is the inclination. But what kind of inclinations do we have? Thank you. What kind of inclination do we have? Well, I just talked about it when I talked about the spirit ha-bahamit and the spirit ha-elohim. Do we have another slide? Thank you. Oh, I can't leave. Darn, that's frustrating. Yetzer, inclination. 
And again, drawing from the two Yud concept, here what we derive from Jewish tradition is that we were created with two inclinations. The Yetzer Hatov, the inclination to do good. The Yetzer Hara, the inclination to do bad is the, is the implication. But can we talk about that for one second? Are you with me? Everyone's awake. You got that slide. That was complicated. All right, here we go. Why? Why? Why do we have two whys? Why do we have two inclinations? And here's the answer. It's quite simple. Because every day is a challenge in the physical world in which you get to make what? Choices. Choices. God desired that you would choose him. But he didn't make you choose him, did he? You have choices. Now, the Torah does not go around forbidding everything that our natural inclination might want. In other words, alcohol, permissible and forbidden. Sex, permissible and forbidden. Food, permissible and forbidden. Financial success, comfort, permissible and forbidden. There's a story, very interesting story told in the Talmud, though, about the Yetzer Hara. Listen, the rabbis once captured, now realize, a legend, okay? This is not the Bible. Don't get upset about that. In a rabbinic legend, the rabbis once captured the Yetzer Hara, the negative impulse, and, and confined it in a big pot. You know this, David, right? They considered killing it, but then they noticed that throughout the kingdom, no one went to work. And even the chickens stopped laying eggs. The rabbis had to let it go. In another source text, the lesson concludes, if not for the evil impulse, the Yetzer Hara, no one would build a house, marry, have children, nor engage in trade. Why? That's weird. What is that even saying? It's supporting the point of the two Yud. Judaism sees a sense of harmony between the physical and spiritual worlds. It's not. It's not this world's horrendous sinful temptation that's going to take you down. Versus the spirit I'm floating in heavenly bliss on earth. There's a connection. Now, Paul makes this very clear that within us rages a battle. Has anyone ever experienced the battle between choosing natural and spirit? We all have. Every single day of your life, you face this battle. And Paul says it this way. I find then the principle, what I already read to you, that that. It's present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I like the law of God inside of me, but I see a different law in my hands and my mouth and my feet that are leading me to do other things or to take the natural to the extreme. And here's the twist, and I suggest that in Judaism they have this, we have this very right. God gave us these desires by necessity. Okay? Stick with me one second and let me clarify that. Spirit and flesh, good and evil, what? You're saying God gave me this thing inside me that's going to cause me to tempt? He's going to tempt me? No, not so fast. 
God allows you to have choices in the way that you live your life. When the spirit rules the flesh, you are in balance. When the flesh rules the spirit, you are out of balance. So we understand the the flesh for a minute. Contrary to, to this classic idea, we have to dig and look at this through Jewish eyes. Why then, you ask, if it's totally natural, why is it called the evil inclination? These are basic instincts that we have to have. And here we get to jump back to Adam. You want to hear what Adam did? You know what Adam did? He's tooling around the garden, right? He's happy. He doesn't even really have to worry about clothes at this point. He's just naming animals and picking fruits and He's he's happy. He's totally in balance. His natural and spirit inclinations are perfectly balanced. And out of the corner of his ear, he hears, Honey, come here. You got to try this. Right? And what happens? He's introduced to somebody. Hasatan. The adversary. Now, that's very different in Judaism than the guy with the little pitchfork and the tail. Okay? This is, by Jewish reckoning, the Satan, the serpent, is the kind of the combination of the personification, I should say, of the evil inclination of Satan, of the angel of death. There's like Talmudic literature says all these bad things about who Adam met there. But what's more important is what actually happened who, when he met this person there. Because what did we see happen? He acquired knowledge of what? And the second part of that being the key, evil. What is evil? Evil is when... We allow our natural inclination to run itself so far beyond what is in balance with the spirit. Evil is when we pursue our pleasures to the extreme in many cases. Now, that, and we're not going to get into a big decision of evil. For my, for my purposes, that's what we're saying. So we had before this, A good story, a good gig was going. We had natural desires for procreation and eating food and growing, you know, doing things. And we had our spirit that was connected with God. But now all of a sudden, the serpent has introduced us and convinced us to go beyond what God said. And now we know evil and what was external to us now lives inside And what Adam did was confuse our our nature. Our physical flesh now became this confused mixture of instinct and excess. And of course, death was introduced into the world and the flesh could now die. But even more problematic is that now we would face this great challenge. And it was no longer some serpent's going to tempt you from outside and try to get you to do bad things. You got to deal with it in your own mind. 
And that's the battle that Paul is talking about. Paul opened the door. I mean, not Paul. Adam opened the door. Paul's opened some other doors because people don't usually understand what Paul's talking about, so he's gotten totally confused. But he is easy to follow here. Well, isn't that, though, original sin then? I mean, aren't we circular here? Adam introduced all the bad, and, and we're back where we started. Well, don't get me wrong. When Adam tasted sin, he changed the game. He opened a door. He really did. He made life a lot more difficult for us. His choice made our choices all the more difficult. Now remember what we're after here. The question I started with, which you probably have long since forgotten, why do I sin? And I want to give you this quick example. You may know this. Certainly you do. Louisiana has a lot of really bad food. It's really, really good food to the flesh. But like, I'm surprised by, I think God is surprised by some of the things that are eaten in Louisiana. <laughs> I really do. He's up, he's like, no, 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 I didn't. Ugh. That lived under a rock in slime. Don't eat that. And you also know that when a Jewish boy is raised in a Torah home, he's taught, don't eat those things that live in slime under a rock or other things like that. So you can imagine that it's a bad idea for a Jewish boy to go to Louisiana and see all of his friends eating things that live under rocks and slime and saying to himself, hmm, that looks good. I think I'll give it a shot. And that's exactly what happened to this good Jewish boy when he went to LSU. I saw them take bugs under a rock, throw them in a pot with some corn, potatoes, and seasoning, pour them out on the table, and start sucking the heads and eating the tails. I thought, man, I've been missing out. Why did my parents keep this from me? But here's the point. Had I never opened the door, because I'm going to tell you something. It, it descended from there. I mean, I had rattlesnake and alligator and seashells and I, I don't know, everything you can eat, they eat. And I have a lot of friends there who eat a lot of really gross things. But they're not as gross to me now because I ate them and they tasted good. And even today as a rabbi, I still crave a good old-fashioned crawfish boil. Why? Well, first of all, if you eat crawfish, you know, I'm not saying, well, that's it for you. You're going to hell. Sinner. You know, Jewish people said at the Mount, we're not going to do that. You said don't do that. Okay, we won't do it. So when you do it, that for a Jewish person is a violation of Torah. Why did I do it? Because I wanted to. Because it looked like something that I should do. Something that I would joy. Instead of saying, God, I know you closed that door to me. I don't exactly understand why, but I do know that there's a lot of other food that you've provided for me that I could eat. So I'm not going to eat that. Nope. Open the door. And now I struggle. Still with the temptation for a pork chop, uh, alligator burger, uh, crawfish, 
etouffee, whatever. Had I simply said no, had I simply allowed my spirit to just slightly overrule my flesh and natural inclination, I could be so much better off today. And I wouldn't struggle ever. So now we've got it. Now, now we have this, this evil inclination thanks to Adam. It's not possession. It most certainly exerts an influence. So back to the beginning, why do we sin? Why are we back at this repentance thing again? Why does it still find application as believers? And unlike the original sin thing, I'm going to have to disappoint you today. I never want to. It's not Adam's fault. It's certainly not God's fault. Adam opened the door that God certainly hoped he would not. But my friends, whatever we struggle with and continue to give into, you choose it. Is it harsh for me to say it's your fault? Is it? Well, listen, let me tell you something. I'm not standing up here to point a holier-than-thou finger at you or to say, well, you despicable people, oh my gosh. I'm getting ready to enter into the high holidays and I'm so holy <laughs> that I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed in you folks, really I am. That's not what I'm saying. If you knew the number of things that I have given access to in my life that I can never erase from my mind and even from my, like, it feels like it's part of your guts, doesn't it? Things that I never thought I would struggle with, things that I never thought I'd be able to conquer, things that I thought God would help me with, things that I hated myself for being or doing. I know what it's like to be ruled by the Yetzer Harah. I have lived the life, and sadly, even if I'm up here with my suit jacket on, I still live the life, if I'm honest with you. Because I'm asking myself the same question. Why do I continue to sin? Because that's what we're supposed to do right now in the high holidays. Leading up to them through the month of Elul. And maybe some of you know that feeling too. Maybe you knew what it felt like to be controlled by the Yetzer Harah. Or maybe you do in the present know what it feels like. To be controlled. And you ask God for help, and yet you find yourself making the same mistakes. And men, it could be the sins of your eyes. Women, it could be the sins of your lips. Or, or I mean, any number of things. And it's not who you want to be, but you ask God, and he's just not taking it away. He's just not making it disappear for you. Anyone ever had one of those Paul thorn in the flesh things? God helps them who help themselves. You ever heard that? 
who can name the proverb? Anyone? If you can, you'll be reading a different Bible, right? It's not in there. Benjamin Franklin said that when quoting Poor Richard's Almanac in a really great quote about the government. Uh, It's quoted by Hercules in Aesop's fables. It goes all the way back to Greek mythology. There's a version of that found in the Quran, but you won't find it in your Bible. As a matter of fact, that statement really riles up some religious people. Really does. I read online um, somebody, when I looked that up to figure out which proverb it was. Just kidding. Just kidding. When it comes to our greatest need, it said, rescue from sin and death. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. When it comes to our greatest need, rescue from sin and death, there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. All have turned from God. All have sinned. We are utterly unable to find true spiritual peace through our own efforts. And man, that is so true. So true. In part. When it comes to our greatest need, rescue from sin and death, there's nothing we can do. Is it any wonder there's a disconnect for most of us in the world from confronting sin when you're told there's nothing you can do about it? Or, or, of owning choices and decisions? Is it any wonder that people look at you? Someone told me one time, any wonder that people look at you in in the... This process, if you ever try to explain Teshuva in the days of Elul and leading up to Rosh Hashanah, you talk to people like people who really love God and they're serious about their relationship with God and they go, why are you doing that? Why would you, why would you bondage yourself like that? Jesus paid it all for my past, present, and future sins, they say. And I'm always a little bit confused by that because I do understand that that is the truth. But does that alleviate any of my responsibility in the equation? Can I write it off and act like, oh, well, whatever, Jesus fixed it. He did, but you have a part to play. You got to own your life. You got to own the decisions that you make. You got to own the choices. And I do, too. And this isn't this. Isn't this. I want to make sure you know that. Nothing we can do. Yes, salvation. Hear me clearly. Salvation. Entrance into the world to come. The sin that is on you from then, now, future. You stay in connection with Yeshua the Messiah. And guess what? You have a removal of the stain of sin that allows you to walk into the world to come and dwell in the presence of God forever. That is what Yeshua's blood atonement does. Does it mean that we never take the time to get down in the dirt and say, God, I'm tired of being who I am? Does it mean that? Of course not. How many times does God tell us, choose life, not death. Choose blessing, not curse. Yeshua says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. How many points do they make the Son and the Father to tell us about our choices? 
It's true. God's help for you is not dependent on you, but you have a part to play in the repair process, Paul. And so here's a statement I can get behind. It's also not in the Bible. God helps those who are honest with themselves. How's that? Is that palatable? Can we, go, can we be okay with that? It's the truth. And that, my friends, is what we're doing here. We are acknowledging our part. But, but you know, we're accepting the gift for the world to come, but also for, the, for, the, for this world. And Paul makes that point. Brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He's not talking about becoming a monk or a nun. He's not talking about never having a glass of wine. He's talking about putting to death the deeds of the body that allow your, your, your lust and desires to overcome within you what is good that Paul put there. Now, I know, I need to, I need to wrap this up, but I love this scripture. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. What fight was he fighting? He was fighting the powers and principalities of the air, but he was also fighting Paul. He was fighting the parts of Paul. Now here's something cool. Trials, choices, why God? Yetzer hurrah, yetzer hatov, come on, why? Because every relationship has trials and tests, don't they? Other than Kelly and I's marriage, I know that many of your marriages, of course, you know you have difficulties. We have horrendous difficulties, if you want to be honest about it. They're my fault, but we do have difficulties at times. But life, as I said, is comprised of choices. God won't make you make a choice. God wants you to want him, to borrow a lyric from Cheap Trick. I want you to want me. Uh, but he won't force that. So you're telling me then, Rabbi, let me get this straight. You're telling me that God is the author of my challenges. Nope, what I'm telling you is that God is the allower of your challenges. You create most of them, actually. But he does give you the opportunity to endure those things. From Adam and Eve to right now, he says, choose me. There's plenty of other options. There's little mud bugs. They're cooked in Tony Sacheries and boiled. Choose me over something so stupid. Did Yeshua struggle with the Yetzer Harah? No, no. Have you read Hebrews? It says he did. But he never committed any evil. I mean, he never even had a thought. How do you know? That's the great thing about Yeshua is that he probably did struggle with some of the very same things. But Hebrews 4.15 ends by saying he did not sin. Why? Because he was perfectly in balance. He knew how to shut it down. We need to learn to shut it down, don't we? You can't, well, I'll, I'll conclude with that in one second. Here's this thing. 
Another, another cool letter thing. Darren, show me that last slide, please. We know the Shema, right? Ve'ahavta, l'reacha. And he says, uh, no, that's not the Shema. Uh, it says, b'chol levavecha. This is another Hebrew word, and I'll make this one shorter. The word lamed, the letter is lamed vet. They, pro, they spell the word heart, right? Lev, heart. If you want to say your heart, you'd say levcha. Your heart, that's the ending. It's levcha. But what do we have here? Once again, remember those doggone two Y's? Here we got two V's. Levavecha. Why? Why? This is the watchword of Israel. This is God saying to his people, love me with all of your heart. What, do the, what is the beautiful thing that the sages say? There's two vets. Why? Because it represents all of your heart. It represents your natural tendencies, your good inclination. Give it all to him, and the Torah is never, ever making a mistake by adding a letter. There's a beautiful thing to see there. Give him all. Give him both vets. Give him and control both yuds, or vetim, I guess they really are. But here's the thing. There's a couple of, there's three ways that Judaism talks about how we deal with the yetzer hara. Number one, you have an impulse. Number one, ignore it. Who thinks that's super easy? Man, if that was easy, this would not be a message we would be, we would be hearing. The second one is redirect it. So here's the thing. I want to have a, I like, I want to get a bottle of wine and really expensive wine and I want to just sit down at my kitchen table and drink the whole thing. The redirection of that impulse says, I'm going to get an expensive bottle of wine and I'm going to sit down on Shabbat with friends and enjoy this bottle of wine in God's presence. I'm going to take an evil impulse and I'm going to switch it around for good. I want to buy this super expensive suit or dress. I am going to buy this super expensive suit or dress for Shabbat because I want to honor God with my very best and I've earned the money and I'm going to dress to the nines for Shabbat. That's how you embrace, that's how you, you redirect. But here's the third one and a miraculous insight that I heard in a teaching from I don't even know who or where. What's the last thing? First is ignore it. Two is redirect it. Three is embrace it. What? Embrace my evil instincts? Embrace it. And here's why. When you feel guilt about sin, do you know where it comes from? Well, the Holy Spirit, right? That's what we are told. Well, this really cool insight and teaching said, you know who's making you feel guilty? It's your evil inclination. It's your yetzer hara. Well, of course it is. There you go, guilt. No one should feel guilty. That's one of them hell feelings that uh, evil inclinations. No, the opposite. 
Here's the thing. Two yuds, two vets. The evil inclination or the natural inclination was put there by God. It has a divine purpose in your life. Remember that thing about nobody wanted to make babies or go to work and the chickens wouldn't lay eggs because there was no natural inclination. No one had any desire to succeed or procreate. God gave you these natures. And when you allow the one to control the other, you are preventing it from accomplishing its God-given purpose. When you allow the Yetzer Hurrah to run wild, you are preventing it from letting you be the complete person that you could be with both natures working the way that God intended. So the Yetzer Hurrah makes you feel guilty. So what do you do? You embrace it and you recognize I am feeling this way because I'm robbing my divine nature from functioning perfectly and properly. That's a little complicated maybe, but man, to think of all of the condemnation and flesh, garbage heat. No, use it. Use it. Control it. Use it. Because God made you able to. And what conceivable excuse can we muster for not trying when we've been given the Ruach HaKodesh? The Ruach HaKodesh. I know secular people, atheists, who live their lives in pretty good balance. They don't even have Yeshua or God at all. But yet somehow they're controlling their natures. We have the Holy Spirit. We have a, a, a hack. We have a, a, a trick. We have a gift that God gave us, which gives us even more profound power to be able to control ourselves. Why do we sin? Well, the devil didn't make you do it. Adam didn't make you do it. We just lost control. Why do we do it? Well, maybe we don't understand ourselves. Maybe, maybe we don't see God's perfect design in the way that we think, in the way that we are. He created your brain. He gave you all of these things. Maybe because we were just confused. But maybe because we're not honest with ourselves. But you ready for the deep truth of this message? Deep truth. I want you to just hold on to your, hold on, hold on to your chair right here. You ready? This is what it's all come down to. Are you ready? We sin because we want to. Well, that conclusion stinks, Damien. Is it true? But that's not really the question. The question is, what are we going to do about it? Well, this is, the, this is it. Because we have the freedom to choose that, because God gave us that option, we also have the freedom to choose this, to appeal to our better nature, our better angels, as Abraham Lincoln said. We sin because we choose. But listen, 
Even before Yeshua, God gave Israel the day of atonement, the day of at-one-ment, where they would come and be honest and say, God, put me back in balance. Help me, Father. Help me to choose life, to choose this. You know, to lean, I said that horribly cheesy thing, lean in last week, and now, now I'm going to tell you to lean on. Lean on the Yetzer Haran. Just push it back down there and let the Spirit take its rightful place. And I thought, as I was concluding my message yesterday, I thought, what, what illustration could I give that would help people be in touch with and aware of their propensity to sin and to recognize it and to realize what was going on. And this is what I thought of. How about if, like when you sense yourself about to say something that you shouldn't say or, or to look at something you shouldn't look at or whatever, how about if you just go, lean on it. Lean on the Yetzer Hurrah, man. Lean on it. And like when you're in a, about to get into an argument with your wife and you're walking toward her, you're like. <laughs> Can you imagine her face? I think that would probably derail the argument. So that could be a good strategy. But that's not what I want to close with. It's this. These whole days that we don't like, it's not fun to talk about sin. And it's not fun to be honest. And it's not fun to recognize our shortcomings and failures, but it's necessary. And I told you last week about letting God act upon you from an, from an unbalanced force, right? Let him, let him work. Well, here it is. Let him help you search your soul. There's a great, incredible blog this week on the FFOZ site. It says this about repentance in this world. In this world, repentance and choosing to do right is something that only has real meaning right now. It says in the Talmud, I can't remember which book it is. It says an hour of, uh, what is the phrase? I didn't write it down. It's, it's one hour of repentance, paraphrase, one hour of repentance is better than the entire world to come. That's a, that's a really big statement, isn't it? Why? In this world, God's presence remains concealed. We don't see God. It takes faith to walk with him. It takes a real effort to set aside our own will for the sake of his. In the world to come, however, God's presence will be revealed. It won't take faith or effort to submit ourselves to him. You get it? What you do here is so incredibly significant because there it's not even a challenge. Here, every day you get an opportunity to choose life, to choose blessing, and to push it down. Don't open any doors. Close doors. God has given us this time and this ability to become the people that we want to be so that next year, it's not the days of, oh man, it's the days of awesome. God, thank you for helping me be who you called me to be. So, like Paul, gotta fight the good fight.
sometimes that fight's right here. A lot of times it is. You ready? Let's do that. Shabbat Shalom. We're building the kingdom and thankful that you're a part of that mission. If this teaching inspired you, please consider a financial gift to support the work of Shalom Macon. Visit MaconMessianic.com and click Give Online. May the Lord bless and keep you.